0: The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, last week we we experienced the story of the washing of feet. And we saw how Jesus literally girded himself uh, with a towel and took on the form of a slave, actually, a literal servant. And he washed the feet of his disciples. And you recall when he came to Peter, Peter knew he was the master, knew that he was the son of God, couldn't possibly bring himself to the reality that Jesus would wash his feet. And you recall Jesus made it very clear when he said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. And of course, Peter's response was, well, then my hands, my head, and you know, then Jesus had to explain to him, no, it's We're talking about spiritual things here. You are my child. God's people don't need to have baths. In other words, they don't need to be saved again and again and again. Once saved, always saved. But we need to wash the dirt and the grime of this world off and to keep close accounts with Him. So we have this wonderful experience here, and then he references in verse 10 that one of them is going to betray Him. And I can only imagine when these words came out of Christ's mouth that here they are, this close band of brothers that have been walking with Jesus for three years, and they've experienced the depth of this man, this this man, this God-man. And now he tells them that one of them is going to betray him. I, I can just feel the tension mounting. And so we come this morning, beginning in verses 18 through 20, and we read, I'm not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one whom I have sent. Now, in the Reformation period of the church history, it was common to speak of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in a threefold division of prophet, priest, and king. The word prophet refers to Christ's role in speaking for God and speaking as God. It dealt with revelation. The word priest refers to Christ's role in giving himself as the perfect sacrifice and also interceding for us now in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And then King referred to his role as, as both in heaven and in, uh, with the church as being king over the church. Now, this is a partic- particularly interesting division in the light of the, of the reality of what's happening in this time in Jesus' life. Within 24 hours of the events of verse 13, Jesus will be crucified. Within another three days, he is to be raised from the dead and then ascend into heaven to rule his church as king. And in this chapter, as to make the trilogy complete, Jesus speaks as a prophet. He's here foretelling what is to come to pass. And in these verses, he's telling that one who had been part of their little band of brothers was going to betray him. So let's look at the prophecy itself. Uh, the prophecy concerning Judas uh, was qualified in, the, in what he had said earlier in verse 10, when he said, and you are clean, but not every one of you. And then he qualifies it in verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, this is a quotation from Psalm 41, verse 9, which says, Even my close friends in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, nothing in the Psalms names who it is that David is talking about, but it's widely accepted that it was Ahithophel, his most most faithful counselor, who sided with Absalom in the rebellion. And Absalom was not taking Ahithophel's counsel. And, of course, he had turned his back on the king. So we find written in 2 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 23, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off to home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Now, the fact that Ahithophel hanged himself is excellent evidence that Christ is probably talking about, and therefore David, referring to to Judas, uh, who himself hanged himself. So Jesus was saying that one who had broken bread with him for three years, one who had walked with him, one who had supported him, one who had been right at his right hand, was going to to, uh, betray him. And this is a very sobering thought, very sobering thought. Because this man, if somebody in the company of these 12 who heard Jesus teaching, who witnessed the miracles, could turn his back on Christ, then it's certainly possible for a person uh, to be in the company of God's people today in a context which the word of God is preached and taught and yet actually not be a child of God. It's very sobering that each person examine their own heart. And know of their relationship. So let's look at the reason for the prophecy. Jesus now gives the reason for this verse. Verse 19. I am telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Now the prophecy is given so that when the fulfillment comes to pass, they will receive the evidence that Jesus is who He says He is. And that He is the unique Son of God, Jehovah. And it's interesting that in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah, this is the primary reason offered for the giving of prophecy. Uh, We usually think of prophecy as being given to satisfy our understanding or to let us know of things to come so we can be prepared and ready for them. But in this case here, the reason the Bible gives is that when the prophecy comes to pass, we might know that God who gives the prophecy is the true God. For only He can fulfill and guarantee the outcome in the future. And this is clear in the central chapter of Isaiah. In fact, uh, it begins with a discussion where God challenges the idols that they had. And we, we read in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 18 to 20, He says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with Him? An idol? A craftsman casts it? A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for the offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up the idol that will not be moved. Then in chapter 41, the argument continues in verses 21 through 24. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proof, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what it is, what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we might know that you are God's, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So God does not mince words when talking about idols. And by contrast, Isaiah says in chapter 48, verse 3, The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth, and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. And this is the exact same argument that John is talking about in verse 19. When Jesus says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So there is a very concerted effort by Jesus to make them know that when he speaks, you can take it to the bank. He is prophesying it. It is going to come to pass. And even in this band of brothers, these people who have been so close so one with each other for these three years that one of them could actually uh, do something like this. So the conclusion is the same. Jehovah is the true God. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus argues that he is not just a spokesman for God, though he is that also. He argues that he is God, and whatever he has prophesied, it will come to pass. Now, This is very important for the disciples because in a few short hours, they're going to be scattered. They're going to be dismayed uh, at the arrest and the crucifixion. They're going to scatter, and their faith is going to be rocked. And you know, sometimes our faith is rocked, isn't it? When things come into our lives that we have no control over, uh, but like the disciples, we need to take total counsel in the Word of God and know that what he has said will come to pass. And because of that, our faith is strengthened. The clearest reason why Christ gives the prophecy concerning Judas is that the disciples might find their faith in him and be strengthened. But as we read in the context of the quotation from Psalm 41, we can hardly miss the truth that the same knowledge that also strengthens us to believe it gives us the total strength to believe the scriptures. And how? By showing us that they are no less, um, no less than, the, than the Lord himself, or excuse me, that they will last for eternity, as the Lord has stated. Like the Lord himself, they will not pass away. Matthew twenty four thirty five. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Matthew five eighteen, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or, nor a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So what is he saying? If it's written in the word of God, it's God breathed. If it's in this book, you can take it to the bank. If you are struggling or confused and you get into the word of God, whatever you, he leads you to, the words he gives you, It's from Him, and you and I can draw amazing strength from that, and that's why we cherish the Scriptures. So when you read a verse, even though you may not be in the mood to grasp it, you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that it is real and that God can use it. As a youth, John Newton had been brought up in a Christian home in England, but his parents died when he was six years old, and so he was sent off to live with an unregenerate family member. He endured much abuse in those years in that home, and then when he was old enough, he ran away to the sea, as many young boys did in that age, and he joined the Navy. Well, the story is told that he fell into tremendous sin and his life was just a mess. And so he left the Navy, went to Africa, where his life just plunged deeper and deeper into sin. Finally, he left Africa, boarded a ship to go back to England, And on the journey back to England, he encountered a tremendous storm. And in this terrible storm, uh, he was asked to go into the hold and help to pump the water out. And for days and nights, he was just in fear and panic. And then he began to cry out to God to be saved, To God would save him from this storm. And immediately, verses came back to his mind. That his parents had shared with him when he was a young boy, before he was six years old. And God used those verses to change his heart, and he accepted Christ as his Savior in the hold of that ship. Later, when the storm passed and he got home, and the story is told, and if you've read his biography, he, he went on to be an amazing preacher for God and a tremendous testimony of his life. And it all started with those verses the word of God that he had committed to his heart at a young age. Let, let me give you a, a modern example of what we're talking about. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that's whoever believes in him, that who should not perish and have eternal life. And well, what is that? Um, what'd you get that for? Um, for finishing this whole book. Very good. I'm so proud of you. Look at me. And look what it can do. What can it do? Oh, wow. That is too cool. Cool, cool. John 3, for God. Now, when might God call that verse to memory? You see, this is is what happened to John Newton. And all these years later, God used that word to draw him to himself. That's just one example of what goes on in our Awana program every Sunday night, where kids all over this church are learning to hide God's word in their heart. That young fella, that verse may come crashing into his mind when he least expects it, but when it's God-breathed word God will use it in his heart. And so Jesus' prophecy is stating it so that they will know it's coming to pass. And when you and I look at these verses and look at this prophecy and see what Jesus is saying, you and I can know beyond the shadow of a doubt it will come to pass. And we can, we can find tremendous peace and knowledge in that. Now, <clears throat> we come to the point in our story, though, where the night is coming. And I want you to look at John 13, verses 21 through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, and certain of whom he spoke. And one of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him and asked Jesus, Of whom he was speaking. So the disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after they had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that it was because Judas had the money bag that Jesus was telling him to buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Now, in these verses, we have the somber recording of Judas departing from the company of him who is the light of the world that he could go out into eternal darkness. This section begins with the announcement of the traitor and ends with the somber sentence, It was night. Within this section, our Lord performs the second symbolic action of the chapter. The first was the foot washing that we saw last week, vividly illustrating the nature of the ministry and admonish those who follow him to assume a servant role. The second symbolic action was the giving of bread to Judas by which he was identified as the traitor. Now unlike the foot washing this was not clear to everyone. Peter asked John to ask Jesus who it is and Jesus gave this example in verse or this ex- explanation in verse 26 it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread When I have dipped it. So, when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. The incident ends when Judas, leaving the little band, goes to carry out his betrayal, an action that would eventually end in both his death and the death of the Savior. Can you imagine the reaction of the disciples when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me? His disciples stared at one another at a loss. What did this mean? Because at this point, they don't know. But Jesus has said, one of you will betray me. These verses further tell us that Jesus was deeply troubled. You know, sometimes... As we look upon Christ in his deity, we forget his humanity. We assume that he was unbothered by these events. He's God. He's above it. He knows the outcome. But he's troubled. He is deeply troubled. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So here's what you need to understand. If we know discouragement, he knew discouragement. If we know distress, he knew distress. If we know sorrow, he knew sorrow. You see, there is absolutely nothing that you and I will ever go through in this life that he hasn't already experienced. So when you're struggling with something and when your heart is just hanging on by a thread, He's there. He knows it. He understands the pain. Here in chapter 13 and for the next hours before the crucifixion, Jesus was increasingly troubled by all that was coming. We know that by the time He got to Gethsemane, He was so troubled that when He went to pray, He sweat literal drops of blood. Can you imagine the physical anguish that was going through him at this time? Betrayal, separation from the Father, and pain were about to take over. And he knew it was coming. Now, there are three great lessons in the fact of Judas uh, being among his disciples that I think are very important for you and I to grasp this morning. Number one: fallen man needs more than an example to be saved. What better example could Judas have had than spending three years with Jesus? He saw the miracles. He saw the feeding of the 5,000. He saw the, the, the raging sea stilled. He saw lame men walk. He saw blind see. He saw the dead raised. He saw everything. It was all around him. And that's why we must pray and ask the Holy Spirit to do a work of regeneration in the lives of men and women. Because only the Spirit can change lives. Examples are not enough. People can sit in churches all their life and not be born again. In fact, popular radio preacher and and, um, scholar, John MacArthur, who's been at the same church for 60 years, and he said not too long ago, one of his main ministries in those 60 years has been evangelizing the church. Because there are a lot of people who come in, get comfortable, and don't allow the Spirit of God to penetrate their hearts. So fallen man needs more than just an example to be saved. Number two, there's a difficulty of discerning the born again. One of the errors in theology is thinking we can always discern those who are saved. Scripture tells us that man looks at the outward, but God and only God looks at the inward. And I don't believe Judas was a mistaken individual. I think he was a deceiver and a hypocrite. But he lived, he lived with others, and he put on this, whole, this false air. Now, a great example comes from a story that Jesus once told. Uh, it was a story about a farmer who, who had planted wheat, and an enemy came along and planted weeds all through his field. And a servant found out about it, and he came to the master, and he says, what are we going to do? Should we go and pull up all the weeds and and get rid of what this enemy has done? And the master said, no, no, let them grow up together. And then we'll harvest them, and we'll keep the, the wheat, and we'll burn the weeds. And we immediately understand the application to the church today. Number one, some of God's people look a lot like weeds. And by the same token, a lot of the devil's people look a lot like wheat. We can't tell the difference, so we allow the Holy Spirit to do His work, and those truly born-again people adhere to the Word of God and walk in the Spirit. And then the third thing we notice here is the patience of our Lord. Can you imagine how patient Jesus was with this person in His group all those years? He allowed him to be there. He was patient. He never called him out in front of everyone to give any indication. But what it it did was brought us to the place we are this morning. It was night. We miss the importance of this event unless we recognize that Jesus was honoring Judas until the end. The seat at the left of the Lord was the place of honor, and that's where Judas was sitting. Now, remember that when the disciples came up to the upper room, they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. In fact, Luke twenty-two, twenty-four 24 tells us, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Additionally, to have the master feed the bread was a further mark of honor. The Lord was gracious to Judas right to the very end, and Judas took the bread. So then Jesus says to Judas, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Light and darkness are important symbols in the story. In the earliest verses of the gospel, John, speaking of the coming of the Lord Jesus, says, In him was life, and it was the light of men. Then later in on in chapter 8 and 9, he called himself the light of the world. To every one of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, he is our light. He illumines our way. His words lead us. That's why the word says that his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. He is our very light that guides us. We further know that That when we turn, uh, when we look to the other Gospels, it says that when Jesus hung on the cross from noon to three, there was darkness on the earth. So the point is clear. To be in the presence of Jesus Christ is light, and to walk away is to walk in darkness. So where do you walk today? Are you living in the light or are you walking in darkness? Is the very focus of your life to walk with Jesus Christ, to be illumined by Him, to be led by Him, and to radiate that light to everyone around you? Or do you walk in darkness? You see, like light, there's no gray area. A dark room is as black as it can be but once you turn the light on, the darkness is gone. You can't have it both ways. Do you walk in the light or do you walk in the darkness? Jesus came to give light. And the whole reason for coming and dying on that cross was to make a way for you to live in the light. Because he loved you so much that he was willing to take on the form of a man, come to earth, suffer this brutal death, die to pay the price for your sins. And when he rose again the third day, he defeated the grave permanently. And when he offers you salvation and you accept his salvation as payment for sins, you are eternally in the light. And no man can pluck it out of your hand. You are sealed. So I don't know how you are today as you came in the door. Visitors, if you're here for the first time and you're not sure where your life is, you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is your Lord if you accept Him. And I pray that this would be the morning that you would do that. And for Christians struggling in darkness, it's not worth it. Amen? Give Him your life and allow Him to do what He wants to do in you. Father, we thank You again for Your Word and for this very difficult story about one who literally was one of Your own precious disciples, but who allowed himself, his selfishness to take over and turn his back on you. Lord, I, I pray that if there was anyone here this morning who doesn't know you as Savior, that this could be the day when life changes, that this could be the day when you make clear the love that you have for them. I pray, Lord, that that would happen this morning. And if there's anyone here who is in that mode, please see me or someone before you leave that you may know for sure that you have eternal life. Go with us now, Lord, and bless us and help us to consider continually your word and what you want to do in our hearts. For it's in Christ's name we pray.